Thank you, Nick. Betsy, my new bride, was working as a dental assistant when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. I got a bad cavity, and uh, there I sat in the chair. Somehow, Dr. Lynn, the dentist, whom we loved very dearly, he was like a grandfather to us, got in his head that I did not take numbing. Looking back on it, Betsy and I have no idea how he got that idea. I thought when he said that to me that he was joking. He wasn't. And then he started to work. With my bride assisting him, beaming down at my manliness or stupidity. And uh, I endured that feeling without benefit of painkiller. I remember that hour very well. The hand grips on the chair were metal. And somewhere in Dallas, Texas, there may well be a dental museum where there's a guy trying to explain the mystery of a dental chair whose arms look like uh, they uh, were uh, molded from claw prints. So, stupid pride. Benjamin Franklin famously said, there was perhaps no one of natural passions so hard to subdue, at, that is no, uh, no, no tendency of natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Now, it's kind of funny, but there's something actually very sinister about pride. Pride removes you from a place where you can receive grace. Pride displaces grace. I can stand up here this morning and talk with you about the next chapter in our brief miniseries in Daniel, that is Daniel chapter 5, as a case, set, a case study of the sin of pride. And it certainly is that. But it's more than that. Because at the root of pride is what, for lack of a better term, I, I'm going to call displacement. It's the symmetrical sin of not seeing God for how awesome he is, and at the same time of seeing yourself for more than you are. There is a dangerous symmetry there. And and this sin can be committed by kings and presidents, yeah, but also by business leaders and athletes and uh, academics and doctors, and pastors. I remember hearing Chuck Swindoll one day saying that the greatest danger that he had as a pastor uh, was believing the good stuff that people said about him. Satan said to Eve, you don't have to listen to God. You just choose what's true for you. You see the displacement there. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. For what purpose? He said, 
to keep me from exalting myself. And all this is connected with this overarching pattern that we see throughout all the Bible. We've said this many times. The Greek word for obey in the New Testament literally means to hear under. And it is, it, it's the picture of placing ourselves under the authority of God and His Word and listening to what He has to say and conforming our lives to it. That's the picture. That's the whole truth of God's Word. So when we disobey, what we're doing is we're placing ourselves above God and His Word and saying, number one, we know better, or number two, we don't really believe what He said is true. It's displacement. And in fact, you could argue, I think, that the whole book of Daniel is about displacement. In fact, the whole of the Bible is about restoring the effects of the sin of displacement. Daniel 5 is certainly about that. In this chapter, Daniel chapter 5, and that's where we're going. If you haven't turned there, go ahead, please. Uh, you, you, you see the principle that Jesus talked about in the parable that Nick read. This chapter has all the makings of a Hollywood movie. Uh, it's got an arrogant, prideful king, spoiled man, a banquet that turns into an orgy, political intrigue, a hero with high principles, and one very unusual special effect. If it were made into a movie, it would be rated R because of the orgy. Uh, or maybe uh, also for horror as the hand appears. I'm not sure. But the focus of the chapter is really on the kind of self-inflated pride that becomes unteachable and unreachable. And that's also what makes this one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible. It's tragic. Now, as we open this chapter, the book of Daniel is not laid out strictly, chronologically, but in part thematically. But yet it's very carefully arranged and dated. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it speaks about Belshazzar the king. We'd never seen him before. Where did he come from? Well, in verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And then if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Then chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king. And then chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. And then chapter 10, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Chapter 11, in the first year of Darius the Mede. See, basically, th this book is carefully laid out for us uh, in, in, in terms of not chronology so much as it is thematically. And last week, look, Lewis took us through a study of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to see the words father and son and mother and son in this chapter, but the, the Hebrew actually doesn't have any word for grandfather, and it's more likely the case that this is the grandson. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and about, we're about to see the queen mother as the grandmother of this man. So uh, she's going to make an appearance uh, in this chapter as well. 
So far, as we have been looking in the book of Daniel, so far, this book has not been about Daniel. And if you want to peg any human being that it's about, it's been about Nebuchadnezzar because he's the only person who's appeared in all four chapters up to this point. Let's piece together his journey. But actually, the, the whole book is about the sovereignty of God and how God is the king of kings. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar defeats the king of Judah and uh, believes that he has conquered the God of the Jews. He takes the, the, the implements of the temple of, uh, in Jerusalem home with him to Babylonia, but he recognize, to Babylon, but he recognizes at the same time, in that chapter, chapter 1, he recognizes the superior wisdom of Daniel and his friends who are believers in the God of the Jews. So Nebuchadnezzar, in other words, from chapter 1, knows that the very best people he knows believe in this God. That's not a bad start. The very best people he knows believe in this God. And in chapter 2, Daniel is able to tell Nebuchadnezzar not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself so Nebuchadnezzar learns from that chapter that God is a God who reveals and who knows the future. In chapter 3, which is about 20 or so years later, Daniel's three friends won't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, but they're miraculously preserved in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar adds yet another attribute to his understanding of who God is, that God is not only all-wise, he's also all-powerful. And he comes to admit that the God of Daniel is the supreme God. He doesn't think he's the only God. He thinks he's the supreme God. It's, but it's almost, almost as if that acknowledgement is, is partial. Not total, not complete, certainly not a commitment. It's more political than personal. And, and you wouldn't be surprised at the end of chapter 3 to hear Nebuchadnezzar say something like, well, okay, I've got it. The Hebrew God can rule the heavens. I will rule the earth. He will rule the sacred. I'll rule the secular. But then you come to chapter 4. And as we saw in that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar comes to grips with who God is because God comes to grips with Nebuchadnezzar. And in that chapter, at the very personal level, he learns that there's no division between the sacred and the secular and that God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he learns that his experience with God is absolutely personal. And because of the sin of pride, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn by becoming a part of his domain. You can read the story in chapter 4. But he experienced the supreme level of displacement. The one, the man who would exalt himself above God became less than man. The spiritual high point of his life was brought about by what would be the all-time low point in anybody else's life. So what he does is he bows before the God of Daniel as his God. And, and chapter 4 is a 6th century B.C. tract where he has put his name to his testimony. That's what chapter 4 is about. And I'm going to read to you the verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, 
And he is able to humble those who walk in, what's the word? Pride. Jesus said this about another unlikely candidate for salvation, the tax collector that Nick read about. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humble, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Nebuchadnezzar learned about the sin of pride. Let me back up. Nebuchadnezzar learned. He was teachable still. And because he was still teachable, he was reachable. Nebuchadnezzar learned humility, and he received grace. But after chapter 4, he's no longer a part of the book. The next chapter picks up with his descendant, probably his grandson, Belshazzar. In chapter 5, Belshazzar just suddenly appears. And then after chapter 5, he just as suddenly disappears. He's gone. Now, his name appears in later chapters as a calendar marker, but nothing more than that. Belshazzar turned his back on grace. And as a result, he received God's wrath. And his reign actually marked the end of a dynasty, the close of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, that we saw revealed in chapter 2. And I I think we're ready to enter the story uh, now. So that all is by way of background. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders which, which means he was continually drinking. And in fact, five times in chapter 5, it talks about his drinking here. Uh, so after he was getting a little tipsy, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessel which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had take, or his, his uh, uh, ancestor, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels which had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you've got this, you've got this drunken party going on with a thousand people, including his wives and mistresses. After this drinking bout with the alcohol suppressing any restraining voice that might be in his head, he does three things. He orders the sacred vessel from, vessels from God's temple to be brought in for public display. Secondly, he proceeded to have them used in that drunken party. Nebuchadnezzar never did anything like that. He kept the sacred vessels, but he didn't do anything like this at all. He left them alone. And the third thing he did was that he then used the vessels of the one true God to drink a toast to other gods. What about that? The temple vessels were used to... 
the inanimate gods of gold, silver, wood, stone. You know what? If you look in chapter 2, what you will see is that there was a statue of gold, silver, iron, and wood destroyed by a stone. You remember that in chapter 2? And those are the gods that he's drinking to. There's echoes there. You should be getting a little bit nervous if you're sitting close to him right now. And, and because that image in chapter 2 is the image that describes how kingdoms are overthrown. What's interesting about this is that Belshazzar knew what these vessels were. He knew what they represented. He knew where they were located. And he knew what they were for. This is not ignorance on his part. This is deliberate, willful rejection of the one true God. And I want to say something that I think we don't talk about very much, but it's a very important truth. God, in his long-suffering patience, has limits. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unquote. Belshazzar is about to experience this. I know, I know, I know, I know. Judgment is always out in the future. Until it's not. Well, look at verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing, and the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners, and he asked them basically, anybody who can interpret this writing for me, I'll give these rewards to that man. And in verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation. Well, we've seen that movie before. So, suddenly, if you just imagine the scene, suddenly this, this wild laughter gives way to this terrified, deafening silence with ashen, white faces. Can you, can you just imagine seeing that hand appear? Belshazzar's knees started knocking and in verse 6, actually refers to losing control over the lower half of his body. Now, I don't know if I'm reading too much into these verses, but I think you can imagine what happened after drinking a lot of fluids. If he didn't wet his britches, he came awfully close. So he calls, calls in his own SWAT team of 
diviners with their decoder rings that haven't gotten anything right. This is the third time that they've been summoned in these five chapters, and it's the third time that they are clueless and don't know what it is they're trying to interpret. Well, in verses 11 and 12, so the, the queen mother steps in, shows up, doesn't mince words with her grandson. And, and by the way, if this is the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, it would make a lot of sense for her to point her grandson to Daniel to find some wisdom in this. So we read in verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king. And I'm going to make a statement that's not in the text. It's something I'm, I am reading into it, but I believe it can be borne out from the, the character that we see of Daniel throughout this book. Daniel is now standing for the first time before the young king for whom, I believe, he had been praying ever since that boy was born. And here he is in front of him. Daniel was brought in before the king. Verse 13, the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king, that my ancestor the king, brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you and so forth. There's, there is a condescending, arrogant tone about the way this young pup addresses Daniel. In fact, Belshazzar is the only person, the only Babylonian to address Daniel by his Hebrew name. Daniel. Calls him Daniel. In the first place, Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. So it's awfully close to Belshazzar, and he probably didn't want that reminder, that association. But in the second place, he's not trying to make Daniel feel at home. He's not trying to make Daniel feel the love. He wants to humble Daniel. He wants Daniel to know before he stands, gives him an interpretation, who he's standing before. He wants Daniel to know his place and to know his humble Jewish origins. So that is what he states. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. So Daniel does three things here. First, he begins by telling the king to keep his swag, to return, uh, he just turns the reward down. And, and, and we might say that this was noble of Daniel, but the fact is Daniel knew that Belshazzar was not going to live through the night. It was history, literally. Now, verse 18. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. Now let's skip down to verse 22. Yet you, 
his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself. And when you exalt yourself, you're doing it in a direction against God. Look at this. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And he refers to bringing the vessels of the temple in and drinking uh, to the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. The God who is the very source of your life breath, the breath with which you blaspheme him and exalt yourself, you have not glorified. So, he continues to give the, the uh, interpretation and just and, and, uh, after that. But I want you to think about that. First, Daniel refuses the rewards. Second, Daniel actually focuses on the king's accountability and guilt and spends more time explaining the king to the king his guilt. Spends more time explaining that than he spends on the message on the wall. Seven verses are devoted to that indictment. But not only that, he focuses on his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, basically saying, you haven't learned. You've been so self-absorbed. You've ignored the lessons of the past. You should have learned. But in your arrogance, you assumed that God's word did not apply to you. And here's why I believe the story of Belshazzar is placed at this point. It's because of the strong contrast with the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapter. And in verse 25, he begins to interpret the handwriting. This is the inscription that was written on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsim. The first two words repeated. Mene, Mene. Those are words of measurement. Measurement of various units of measurement. Here, it would refer to measurement of time. And what he is saying is, time is up. Time is up. It's repeated. To kill is uh, another term uh, that refers uh, to the fact that they, a, a different kind of measurement, the fact that he has been in a, uh, he has uh, been weighed in a scale and he has fallen short of the glory of God. So he continues, this is the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Time's up. Time's up. To Kale, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And then the Upharsin, the U part is a connective and, and the Parson is related to the root for Peres, Peresh, which refers to Persian, the Persians, and it's plural, which connects not only to the Persians, but the plurality of the coalition that is going to attack. So we read, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and 
Persians. So Daniel interprets the handwriting. And don't misunderstand, the handwriting on the wall is not God's call to repentance for Belshazzar. It's not an invitation, it's a verdict. Belshazzar's sin was not in ignoring the handwriting on the wall. By that time, it was too late. His sin was in ignoring God, ignoring the lessons of history. He failed to learn from God's hand in Nebuchadnezzar's life. All the king, all that the king needed to know, everything that he needed to know to avoid judgment, he knew before that night. But he'd made his choices. And he chose not to summon Daniel until the very last day of his life. Well, verse 30. Oh, by the way, Belshazzar gives orders and wants Daniel clothed in purple with a necklace of gold and going to proclaim him a ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean or Babylonian king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Secular history fills in the details of verse 30. There are books written about verse 30. Uh, The city of Babylonia was protected by a system of double walls. The inner wall extended 12 miles around. The double walls were each 25 feet Chariots would ride on top, side by side. And there was 40 feet in between the two double walls. So there was this this place in between. And then you add a total of 360 towers that were 160 feet apart. It was impregnable. Nobody could conquer Babylonia. Nobody could get at them. But that night... Darius the Mede managed to lower the level of the river Euphrates right next to it so that his army could enter the city under the walls. The historian Xenophon records that the city was taken at night during a huge festival. Hmm. And that the king was killed. What's interesting is all that amazing history here. It's just reduced to a few words in one verse. What you have is that God had Belshazzar in his hand and said, what a story. Sometimes we hear people say that pride is a virtue. (laughs) He's a proud man. My grandpa was a proud man. As though that's a good thing. Well, it's not. It's not always a good thing. I mean, we, we, we do understand that there's an appropriate pride, such as the pride that a parent feels in the accomplishment of their child. Um, Betsy and I got texted all day yesterday about how our grandsons were placing in the swim meet of Knoxville. My, one of them placed eighth in the city in his group of little boys. I'm thinking there's Olympic potential here. <laughs> so, no, this, this is the kind of, that, that's the kind of thing that you look at 
And it should drive you to say, oh, Lord, thank you. That's fun. Thank you. That's, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not thanking God for his blessings. This, this is a kind of pride that we first saw in Nebuchadnezzar, but he, became, he was teachable. But now we see in Belshazzar, it's the pride that leads to arrogance. It's the pride that leads to this deadly displacement of God from his throne and exaltation of ourselves in his place. It's the kind of pride that displaces grace. And I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. Everything that this king needed to know to avoid judgment, he knew before that night. He had already made his choices. When we stand before the God of the Bible, we are responsible for the revelation that we have received. And we cannot plead ignorance. There is judgment. So, are you in any way, am I, delaying a decision to walk with him, to be discipled under his word, within his body, or even to receive him as Savior? Are, are you delaying that decision? Judgment is always off in the future until it's not. Now, this is not one of the enjoyable, encouraging chapters of the Bible. Uh, I can't frame it in a sermon to make it a happy study. It is what it is. But I want you to think through what we see in this chapter and ask yourself, okay, Lord, in my life, who's on the throne? Is it a political party? Is it my retirement account? Is it my accomplishments? Those of my children? Is it my collection of friends and their opinions who happen to agree with me? Is it your degrees? Is it your good looks? Is it your health? Is it your athletic abilities? Because if God is not on the throne, then anything else that is there is something less and is an idol. Remember the parable that Jesus told, not the one that was read earlier, but he told the story of, quote, a certain rich man. <laughs> and that would be every one of us in this country today, a certain rich man. And the rich man said to himself, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. <coughs> Belshazzar had only minutes to live. <coughs> but he didn't know it. <coughs> and he spent those precious minutes occupied with purple clothing, a gold necklace, and promotions. That's just, it's just tragically pathetic. So, how much time do I have? 
maybe not that long if I keep okay. <laughs> There's a sympathy cough over here. Thank you. How do I pl- apply this to myself? I know full well what my weaknesses are. They are, well, I just know them. How can I apply this to you? I can't. Only God can. But I suspect you know what your weaknesses are. So I'm going to close with three questions of challenge for you to consider. Number one, are there spiritual lessons from your family or maybe your family history for you to learn from and to reflect on? They may be wonderful lessons. They may be cautionary lessons. Are there things, there spiritual lessons for you to learn from, to reflect on? Question number two, are you so busy living your life that you don't have time to stop and think about your life, what your orientation is, what your priorities are. And not only your life, but your eternal life. It's not good to put off asking that question until it's the last day of your life, like Belshazzar did. Third question, who's on the throne? Is anyone or anything displacing the God who loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you? Judgment is always off in the future until it's not. Lord, I thank you.